Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Today we have with us Eric Gall from Edison Business Advisors, based out of Florida. On our episode today, Eric shares the details of a transaction from a second-generation family-owned business started in the 1950s, and the business had no succession plan in place. The children had just moved on and were not interested in the business. As with a lot of businesses, the owners, in this case four family members, three of whom worked in the business and one that didn't, had a sales price and a number they had in their mind that they needed to get out of the business. Listen to how this number and the fear surrounding being able to get that number dictated how the decisions were made when they were trying to sell their business. Next, Eric shares a story about a medical billing company where the partners had a very serious disagreement that landed them in court, where the judge, through a court order, forced the business to be sold as a way to resolve their dispute. The interesting thing is that their company had figured out a way which they called a better mousetrap on how they were able to create high value in their business by highly increasing the efficiency on how they process the medical billing. Find out how a strategic buyer entered the picture and what happened during the negotiations when the buyer really figured out what the magic formula was for the business valuation and what he was really buying when he made his offer to buy the business. Then Eric shares a story about an electrical contractor who was able to head off attempts by a very sophisticated buyer to drive down the price of the business. There is a key takeaway in this transactional story that every entrepreneur should take notes on. So get out your notepad and get your pen ready, because this is a real good takeaway in this episode. Finally, Eric shares how a buyer's big vision was in alignment with the seller's willingness to help the buyer achieve his vision, and why this concept of alignment is so important between buyers and sellers, and if they understand this, you will virtually sell your business every time if you can create this alignment. So let's buckle up, and dive into our episode today and learn what Eric has to share with us. This is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast. Today we're here with Eric Gall. Eric, uh, you're down there in Florida, I guess. Would you take a few moments and talk a little bit about your business and a little about your background? before we get into chatting about some of your transactional stories here today. Yeah, certainly. Thank you, uh, Marvin, for having me on. I really appreciate it and uh, be glad to give you a little background. I'm the principal at Edison Business Advisors. We're a Main Street and lower middle market uh, you know, advisory firm for you know, individuals who want to sell their businesses and you know, folks who want to buy. So we've been down here for about 15 years, we started, uh, you know, a little private equity group down here, and, and I started selling off those entities after the Great Recession, and we've been doing it for business owners and aspiring business buyers, you know, ever since. 
All right. Why don't you uh, take a few minutes now and give us an idea of some of those transactions you've been involved with in the last couple of three years that have some interesting twists and turns and uh, might be of specific interest to some of our audience here that are business owners that are thinking about selling at some point in time? Uh, certainly. Uh, one of them I'd, I'd probably lead off with is a machine shop that uh, I did earlier this year in Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm, uh, I've, I've got some background in machine shops, uh, in CAD cam software firms and the like in the, in the past. So this is something that was right up my alley. I, I, I love to uh, work with machine shops. Uh, this was a second generation owner, uh, or set of owners, uh, two brothers, two sisters. Uh, they were hitting retirement age, didn't have a, a succession plan. Uh, so we began working with them about two years ago on an exit strategy and plan and how to, uh, you know, prepare their business for sale. And eventually we found them a buyer. Uh, that buyer uh, came to us through an SBA lender that I had uh, been working with to pre-approve uh, the business. And she took a look at it, thought it was a great business. Uh, she was actually uh, in uh, classes with this buyer at Cleveland State University in an entrepreneurship program uh, where this buyer was looking to, you know, become a business owner. So, you know, she let him know about this business that we had for sale. Uh, he was a longtime uh, executive in uh, the machine shop industry, actually a competitor, and he felt that that competitor uh, was going in a direction that did not fit his values. Uh, and he was looking, you know, to make that change uh, where he's, you know, going to run the show. And he was in a company that fits his values. So, you know, we worked with, with him and, uh, and, and the sellers and eventually got the deal done, but it, it wasn't without, you know, quite a bit of uh, bumps along the, along the road. So just out of curiosity, Eric, you mentioned that this was, uh, I think you said a second generation machine shop. So it had been around for quite some time. How many people were involved in a, this kind of family operation? Uh, well, you know, it started out, most of these, most of these places start out, you know, like in the tool and die industry where they start, uh, you know, grinding in their, in their, uh, you know, garage, uh, you know, so this started, you know, back in the mid '50s, with the the father of the four uh, present owners, you know, literally starting in the, you know in in his garage, and he built that business up uh, to about uh, a four and a half million dollar annual revenue company. Um, you know, and passed it over to his kids who had run it since probably right around 2002, 2003. I think it turned over. Uh, to their control. Yes, no one really wanted to, you know, stay in the business. They were just looking for a clean exit, huh? Yep. The uh, the kids had moved on, started their own careers, and uh, you know, running a machine shop wasn't their wasn't their uh, passion. So the only choice they had was to sell or dissolve, and they had a valuable commodity there that was going to fund their retirement. So selling was the best option by far. And so we have a first time buyer, I guess. Mm hmm all kind of teed up by the SBA lender that knew of them. And so how did this transaction kind of unfold? Well, you know, we went into contract back in November of 2019, and it was in LOI form. So there were still quite a few of the, uh, you know, key items of the contract or the agreement to be negotiated. And one of those 
key items was a working capital formula. And we had some issues. Uh, the, the sellers were a little bit leery of that working capital formula that we initially you know, started with. And that, that uh, discussion broke down mostly out of fear that uh, you know, the sellers had a number in mind that they needed to exit with. And uh, that working capital formula made them a little uneasy, unsure if they could actually achieve that number to exit. So they walked away. So let's talk a little bit about that because I don't know, I'm sure most of our audience uh, kind of knows what working capital and those formulas at time of exit are important. But why don't we just chat a little bit about that, of why that's so critical when it comes to the cash that's taken out of the business after the closing? How, How does that vary and why would the sellers be so concerned with that? Well, the work, you know, working capital or networking capital, you know, in generalities is uh, cash, uh, receivables, inventory, in this case, you know, less any short-term payables. So for an ongoing business, you know, and for cash flow purposes, uh, you know, the buyer felt it was very important for them to, you know, purchase an ongoing business, you know, where you know, he's got inventory and, you know, going out the door that he's collecting on, you know, from day one, he's got receivables and money coming in from day one to meet the payables that are going out. You know, he's got a little cash in the bank, you know, his cushion. So if you don't include working capital in this business, uh, you know, there's going to be a lapse of time, you know, before, you know, where you're doing the work and you're producing the parts and then you're shipping them out and then, you know, you're waiting, you know, 30, 45 days to collect on those parts. In the meantime, you got to pay your employees, you got to, you know, pay your light bill, uh, you know. So in this case, uh, with the machine shop uh, and the bank's requirements, you know, we do need some level of working capital included into into the deal. So you mentioned here that the CPA really crafted a formula to make sure that there was adequate working capital going to be available. What was so unusual or difficult about that formula that made everyone, or at least the sellers, a little antsy? Well, it's not so much the formula as much as it is as the variability in the business. You know, uh, machine shops run based on, uh, you know, this one in particular, you know, on what POs and contracts come in. And those can change, you know, significantly from uh, week to week. So there's quite a bit of variability in that in that working capital uh, number. And you know, the great fear was that you know the the buyer would buy at a time when you know there was a significant amount of uh, you know work in process inventory or a significant amount of cash in in the bank account or you know. Uh, far greater receivables and payables if they just shipped something right out the door. And, you know, that, that could shortchange the seller, you know, significantly in the total purchase price of the business and, and their walkaway cash. You know, this is a dynamic that any business has, but, you know, certainly businesses that are inventory intensive, receivables intensive, and have a lot of cash moving around in the business, it, it is a particular concern. And so you can understand why a buyer or a seller that's kind of a, a tug of war here to make sure that uh, that working capital amount is really dialed in well. So the buyers, I guess, from what you're saying, had a really big fear because they had a number in mind that they wanted to close at. 
when the deal was completed that they wanted to walk away from the table with and working capital fluctuations could have a big impact on that. Is that expressing the concerns and fears of the buyers or sellers were? Yeah, exactly. And when, you know, you've got four buyer or four sellers involved, uh, you know, their cuts 25% each. So, you know, you're talking about if it's a, if it's a swing $200,000, you know, one way or another, it's $50,000 into one of their pockets walk, you know, walking away. And, you know, they were, you know, I don't want to they were just concerned. Sure. Understandably. So, yeah. Yeah. That this purchase price, you know, could shrink, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars and I don't have quite enough money to walk away and retire with. So it was very important to them to hit that right number. Those that have been through a lot of transactions like you have and others that are listening here, that's an important component and it can't be minimized. And for those that are first time sellers out there, you know, that's one thing that should be on your radar is to really understand the impact of working capital. Cause the last thing you want to do is be surprised when you show up at the closing table and there's a big variance in what you were expecting. And uh, it's just because of the formula that computed working capital. Well, go on and let's find out what happened here. Well, you know, we, uh, we uh, fell out of contract because of it because we couldn't get agreement on that formula. Um, but, you know, we knew the buyer was very motivated and uh, he had a time deadline to make a decision. So tell me a little bit more about the buyer. Yeah, I mean, he's a real good guy, um, you know, kind of uh, gung-ho, charge ahead, <laughs> bull in a china shop kind of guy. So he, you know, he, w- he was trying to grab this steer and wrestle it to the ground the whole way through. Um, you know, but every once in a while he would step back and, you know, have to think through it and, you know, but he kept coming back, uh, you know, and this was just kind of the, the first issue was the working capital form, uh, formula. You know, we had, you know, two other issues that popped up, you know, after that, that, uh, again, he just, uh, you know, backed away for a while, kind of reset himself, looked at the deal again. And came back. What were those other issues that came up? Well, the, the second one that came up it was the property appraisal. Uh, they were selling the property uh, with the business, and the buyer was absolutely adamant that he owned and controlled the property, and it had to be part of the deal. So the SBA lender picked a, a property appraiser to go out and you know, put a number on that property. And that number was 30% below what commercial real estate uh, brokers were telling the seller the business w- or the, um, the real estate was worth. Now, this is the appraiser that the SBA required, right? That's correct. And so they're not going to believe others giving a market appraisal that are in the business, a commercial real estate broker. They're going to rely on a, a certified appraiser to tell them what that property is worth and came in a lot lower than anticipated, I guess. That's correct. Uh, significantly lower. So again, we had an issue with, oh my, here's fear again. Uh, we're not going to get a number we can walk away with when you're when your real estate, you know, is now five hundred thousand dollars less uh, than what you thought it was worth, um, so you know we went back to work. Uh, you know, the buyer kind of stepped away again and said, "Well, you know, I'm not paying any more for the real estate than what it's worth." But the good news is, is the business appraisal came back, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars higher uh, than what we expected, and. 
the uh, discussions regarding the building uh, and structure itself, uh, there was acknowledgement that the roof needed replaced. So we threw in a new roof, uh, the, you know, up the price of the business by $200,000. And, you know, that uh, almost completely offset, not quite, but it, it made up for a sizable chunk of that $500,000 shortfall uh, in the property valuation. And the buyers, the buyer was happy with, with that kind of that agreement and that number. And the sellers, you know, felt that, you know, based on, you know, that it was a fair deal and uh, they could walk away with what they needed you know, to, to retire. I guess one of the things you can take away here is, you know, you have to get creative sometimes. If you understand what the end result's going to be, there's a lot of different ways to get to that end result. And it sounds like there were a couple of blind alleys here, but you finally got to where you needed to be. As this sort of came by, you said that this was sort of the tail end of last year. When did it close? Uh, we closed this deal on March 6th, which... <laughs> I have to ask, you know, March is kind of uh, ground zero here when it comes to timing on what was going on in the world at that time. So how did that impact things? Well, I mean, it uh, it ended up benefiting the buyer significantly after the sale. Uh, you know, I think COVID around mid-March, right around uh, what the 16th, 17th is when they started locking everything down. Uh, but uh, fortunately, shortly thereafter, the SBA came out because this deal was done through an SBA loan. The SBA came out and they said, hey, guess what? Uh, if you, you know, signed an SBA loan, you know, uh, you're, you're paying off on an SBA loan right now. We're going to give you six months, uh, you know, abstention of having to make a payment. So the buyer basically got six months of no payments, you know, right off the bat. Uh, so that, uh, that was a, a significant help to him. Uh, and then obviously shortly after that happened, they came out with the paycheck protection program, the PPP loan program, uh, which he was able to, uh, you know, tap into that as well. So there were, uh, you know, two, uh, I'd say great programs uh, put forth by the SBA to, you know, assist the buyer right off the bat. And, you know, and the seller got the money they needed to retire. So both sides are very happy. I followed up with them, you know, probably about uh, two or three months ago and things were going real well. Um, the the um, manufacturing in the United States, uh, even with COVID hitting, uh, hasn't, uh, significantly impacted, you know, business for them. So they've, they've kind of, you know, worked their way through this very well. So they sailed right through some choppy waters. That's good to hear. It's not everyone has a story like that in these uncertain times. But going back to this transaction, what would you say the takeaways here are? I mean, from my perspective, as I've listened to you share the details of this transaction and where the buyer and the seller were both at at the time, it looks like on the seller side, there was a lot of fear of the unknown. And they had this number, as you said, they needed to walk away from the table with. And I think with most uh, sellers and business owners, entrepreneurs out there, they, they, they kind of have that number in mind. And that fear of the unknown of not being able to get that number creates a lot of angst. Would you say that that is one of the drivers here that when a problem would come up, that that fear would raise its ugly head and cause deal problems? Well, definitely. 
you, you know, everybody's got uh, their vision of what they, how they want the deal to go down. Um, you know, and the sellers, sellers, you know, definitely have numbers in mind. And, you know, it's one of the first things we cover with the, with the seller is, you know, kind of what is your number? What do you need, you know, to, to walk away? And if you're not ready, what do you need to do to get there? Right. And we had that discussion with, with, you know, these sellers, you know, right up front and, uh, you know, there was a few things that they did along the way to help them get closer to that number. And then of course, you know, we had, had some surprises, you know, in this case with the property appraisal and, and, uh, you know, the working capital formula, um, but we're able to work around them to get them back to that number that they needed. And, uh, you know, and please the buyer too. Well, I appreciate you sharing details of that transaction with us here because I think that when you go into a deal like this, the more information you have, the more you understand the particulars of the transaction, you can go a long way to reducing that uncertainty and fear. Eric, uh, why don't you come up with another transaction here that had its uh, uphill challenges as you climb that mountain to sell the business? Well, I'll stay in 2020 since it's so uh, recent and there's so many things happening in 2020, um, you know, that can cause problems. But uh, this was uh, another uh, Pennsylvania company. It was a medical billing company that uh, we ended up transacting at the end of July and, uh, this one was very popular. Uh, we had over 500 inquiries on it, uh, you know, between the time we listed it and the time we sold it. I had over 100 inquiries in the first month. I had 200 by the end of the second month. And uh, I mean, it's a, they are businesses that are in high demand. Tell us, before we jump in and talk a little bit about why you had so many inquiries, tell me a little bit about uh, the dynamics of the owners and what was their motivation for selling? Well, this one was interesting because it was a court-ordered sale. Uh, the principal owner, uh, the majority owner, was in the business uh, for a long time uh, with a silent investor. And that silent investor uh, was out of work and decided that he wanted to come into the business and work in it. So they had an agreement or at least, uh, you know, in principle of how they were going to operate. And the majority owner felt that the minority owner wasn't uh, contributing uh, what he thought uh, the minority uh, owner was going to contribute. And that was mostly business development work. And, you know, the primary owner, he was, you know, more, you know, in the weeds, uh, operation, driving the operation, uh, you know, and he fired, you know, his majority owner, told him, you no longer have a job here. You're out. He fired the minority owner. The majority fired the minority, right? That's correct. Yes. The majority fired the minority owner and that precipitated some legal action. And they went back and forth until the judge said, uh, there's no resolution here other than to sell. So, uh, middle of last year, 2019, uh, you know, they approached me and, you know, we prepared the business for sale and, uh, you know, tried to find them a buyer. And obviously there was something going on in the business when you have three, four, 500 people lining up to take a look at the business. They obviously had a great business. So 
kind of sad that they have to bail on it, but probably a good idea to figure out what that in what was unique about that drove the interest in the business. Uh, well, it was a gynecological uh, medical billing company, and uh, there are very few major competitors in the country. So we'll say less than ten, and. You know, this uh, particular business uh, had a significant competitive advantage uh, over their competition. Specifically, they had found a way, um, you know, they called it their mousetrap. They built a better mousetrap to process, you know, the billing. And this mousetrap was able to do it at about 50% of the uh, personnel required by their competitors. So they were very efficient, which allowed them to discount a little bit against their uh, competition uh, to you know, gain some market share. So they were cheaper, but they were also better. The reason they were, the reason they were so uh, efficient on a personnel standpoint is they were able, they were able to uh, process the work so well the first time through that there was very little rework. Uh, and if you're familiar with medical billing and if you've received medical bills in the past, how many times are they wrong, right? Um, this company did a, just a great job of eliminating that rework. And it was a significant uh, competitive advantage, which made them very attractive uh, to other medical billing companies, especially in their discipline. So when you talk about the type of interest that you had, we'll say 500, you said, and I think that's the number you said, how many of those actually were serious to submit some sort of LOI or letter of interest at that point in time? Was the interest really that high that you got a lot to the table? Well, I mean, it, it basically took up all my time in uh, July and August last year, just uh, responding to NDA requests and requests for meetings. We had 62 requests for meetings just in the first month alone. Um, so there was no way to process that you know, efficiently. So what we did is we ran an auction. And I ran that auction by stating, you know, you have X number of days to submit an LOI. Uh, we had 20, uh, a little over 20 uh, prospective buyers submit an LOI uh, by the end of August. Uh, we narrowed those 20 down to 12. So an LOI is just a letter of intent, right? Correct. Yep. So, yeah, we just ask them, what's your deal structure, your pricing, you know, uh, any key considerations, uh, you know, put them down on paper and we'll take a look at them and we'll decide if you're worthy of a phone interview. So how do they break down the people that you got to the table? You know, the LOIs, were they people in the business? Were they investor group? You know, what was the breakdown of those that had an interest? Uh, of the uh, of the 20 LOIs we received, uh, I would say, you know, we had... Probably five of them were, you know, billing companies. Five to seven of them were billing companies. Uh, you know, another, I would say seven to nine were private equity groups, which may or may not have had a billing company, you know, already under their uh, portfolio. And then the remainder were either were high net in, in high net worth individuals who were looking, you know, for a good, solid, profitable business to purchase and run. And so how did those letters of intent whittle down people that went on to the next step? Yeah, we narrowed them down to 12 for phone interviews. And then we narrowed those 12 down uh, to four visits. So we picked, you know, four different buyers that we felt comfortable with and met with them, 
you know, uh, offsite, uh, in the, in the city that this was located in. And, um, we came out of those visits. The interesting thing is we came out of those visits and I ranked the buyers in order of I, what I thought their, uh, um, I'd say probability of buying was, and I ranked them one, two, three, four. Well, the seller agreed with me on number four and we kind of pushed them aside, but they ranked my one, two, three, they ranked them three, two, one. <laughs> so, uh, we went through due diligence, uh, with, uh, you know, my number three ranked buyer and we got to the end of the end of the due diligence and they decided that they were going to change terms and conditions uh, from their LOI. So obviously the seller wasn't happy and we booted him out of the deal and brought in number two. So we ran through number two, uh, got through due diligence. And once again, they changed the terms and, and conditions of the, uh, of the LOI at the end of due diligence and we booted them out of the deal. So I wanted to bring in number one. They were like, let's go back to number three. So we went to number three, number three strung it along a little bit. And then they got to the end of due diligence. But your number three was their number one, right? Was their number one. Correct. So they brought their number one back in, try to get a deal done with them. We got down to the end of due diligence um, this was a high net worth individual, by the way. We got down to the end of due diligence. Uh, we provided 2019 financial statements. It was their best. It was a seller's best year ever, uh, like $200,000 additional to the bottom line. And for some reason, the buyer decided that was worth a $500,000 price decrease. So he was kicked out of the deal with, uh, with force. Um, so then we brought in the number one, my number one, their number three, and uh, that went fairly smoothly and we completed the transaction at the end of July. And so what was the profile of this buyer? Was it a PE group or a high net worth individual or a, someone in the business or what? Uh, the number one, my number one buyer was actually a competitor, uh, but the, the seller, you know, had fear of giving away their trade secrets, you know, that better mousetrap that I spoke of earlier. And they were a little leery of talking to someone in their industry, uh, even though that buyer, you know, was a perfect fit for them. That comes up quite often, doesn't it? Where you're looking at selling to a competitor and you just don't want to open up the lid to the jewelry box and show all of your precious secrets in fear that if the deal doesn't close, they've learned things about your business that could end up hurting them. Oh, you know, and the buyer, the buyer was taking a look at the seller, you know, and they're like, okay, yes, we can buy all these accounts and we can, you know, we see that cash flow. Um, but they also saw the opportunity to, you know, create efficiency within their present accounts that they already owned. So you're saying that their profile was much more industry standard where they had twice as many billing personnel to process the same amount of work than the company they were targeting to buy. And they were really anxious and excited, I imagine, to figure out you know, what this was all about, because that would mean a tremendous, because I, I assume they were a much bigger player, correct? Uh, I wouldn't say they were much bigger. Uh, they were a little bit bigger, okay. uh, but... When you look at those efficiencies, if they could, uh, you know, enact those on on to their bottom line, they become a significantly more profitable company. And when you talk to them about what their long term strategy was, it was to acquire additional billing companies 
you know, and then eventually flipped this, you know, to uh, a, you know, a much larger uh, player in the industry or a private equity group, you know, for a significantly higher multiple than what they're buying, you know, in this, in these little lower middle market transactions. So, I mean, it was a, it was a great deal for them and it provided opportunity when they, you know, in for their internal operations to become more efficient and to apply those efficiencies to any other future acquisitions that they were going to accomplish. I don't know what the terms of the deal actually turned out to be, but given that they were really excited about the business and what the business could do for them, I imagine that the terms were fairly favorable as compared to the other people that were making offers or thinking that in negotiation with. Yeah, this was a 100% cash at close deal. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah, Which is shocking in the uh, medical billing industry because, uh, you know, you have the fear from the buy side of losing some of those key clients, which could substantially reduce revenue and profit. Um, but they came to the table with cash. They were that excited about uh, this business. Well, that's not surprising. I guess... The takeaway here, at least from the chair that I'm sitting in and listening to you share a little bit about how this deal unfolded, is that medical billing or any other business that you have, if you have the right value proposition and the right competitive advantage, something that gives you differentiation in the marketplace and that is well-established and meaningful, you'll probably be able to get your price and probably more importantly, the terms that you want. And that seemed to be what happened here. At the end of the day, that key component that they figured out, as you said, their better mousetrap really was the thing that was the most attractive to a buyer out there. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, that was the uh, that was kind of the, the cherry on top of the sundae. And so for those that are listening today, when you think about your own business and how that takeaways from this transaction might fit into what you're doing and thinking about in your business, think about what that competitive advantage, that value proposition that you can really dial in to create value in your business that when it comes time to exit and what that's going to mean to a potential buyer. Because if it's valuable enough to that buyer, just like here. Once they figured out what they were doing to get that two-to-one ratio where they could chop their staffing in half, which is big bucks, they're going to come to the table with a lot of excitement and ability to close that deal. And I guess that's what happened here, right? Have you kept in touch with them? Has the deal gone well? Uh, yeah, it's it's definitely gone well. Um, I've stayed, uh, you know, good friends with the uh, primary seller, talked to him uh, about uh, Big Ten football constantly. So (laughs) when's it coming back? Finally, it's back. What football there is anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, let's talk about some of those transactions you've been involved in that had some interesting real upside to it that went well. Yeah, certainly. The the first one I'll talk about is an electrical contractor. Uh, We did this deal here in Florida uh, earlier this year. Um, That one closed in May. And uh, that was one where, you know, we, the, the business ran really well uh, because it had a manager in place and a management team in place. The seller, the seller is very well known in the area. Uh, very been here. He's a uh, like first generation or second generation family uh, that uh, was one of the, like founding families of a a larger community down here. 
And, you know, everybody knows him and everybody knows his electrical contracting company. You know, you see his trucks everywhere. So he was someone, again, didn't have a succession plan. All his kids, you know, ran off to, uh, you know, pursue their own careers. So he needed, he needed to sell. And he had a great business and uh, didn't work in it. He really kind of worked on it. Um, you know, he was kind of the chief decision maker, you know, broke ties amongst his management team. But he was really more interested in being out in the community and, you know, talking to people and uh, performing community service. So, you know, great, great person, very well known in the community um, and, uh, you know, needed needed to transition out of his business. Having a lot of familiarity with people that fit that profile, they are well respected in the community and their business is kind of their alter ego and the business really becomes them. And so a lot of times they use their business to fund their lifestyle. How did it work out in this situation? Well, you know, it, uh, it was part of his retirement fund, but I think he had done so well, you know, in life that it wasn't overly critical, but just like any seller, you know, he has pride and he felt that he had a number that uh, he wanted to achieve at the end of the day uh, because he saw this value in his business. Uh, It was a little bit higher than what the number was that I came up with, uh, but I told him if he's patient and he continues to grow the business, we can get there. And uh, he was patient. He continued to grow the business, and we eventually got to that number. So when you look at how the business transaction unfolded, was there, as I was mentioning earlier, owners, entrepreneurs, you know, they use their business to run a lot of things through their business. And that often gets in the way of both a lender and a buyer when they look at the difficulty of validating some of those expenses. How did it work out in this situation? Well, he did run, you know, items through his business. Uh, You you know, there was a fair amount of discretionary spending, we'll call it. And the great thing was, is that he did a great job of documenting it. And when we went through the financials, uh, you know, we could prepare for a seller's questions, you know, and be ready to answer them with, you know, facts versus, oh, well, you know, it's about that or, oh, well, no, we don't have that documented. We didn't have any of that in the in the due diligence phase. And that's so common. Nine out of 10 times or higher, people just don't document or can't validate and support what those addbacks are going to be. Yeah. I mean, it was great because it was like, okay, you need this. Here's the report. Okay. You need this. Um, you know, here's where we have it. Uh, you know, he was right on top of it. And, you know, every challenge, every challenge the buyer tried to, you know, find something wrong with the business in order to get a price discount. You know, the seller was ready for it and we were ready for it. And, you know, it, uh, it never happened. So he got, he got the price he was asking for. So what would be the takeaway here? I, I think the key takeaway is, you know, if you've got a business that's very well run uh, and you've documented, you know, everything well, uh, it'll survive those tougher buyers who are just going to dig, 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 you know, through their due diligence, you know, to try to find something wrong with the business. So if you prepare a business right, you know, you can avoid those, you know, last minute discounts on price or negotiations on price and terms. 
And this is one certainly where we were able to do that. And we had this thing locked down airtight. I like that term that you said there, locked down airtight. I think that more often than not, when it comes to being able to defend the value of a business and things aren't locked down airtight, you get backed into a corner and often can't defend that price and you end up giving concessions. But in this particular situation, as you said, locked down airtight and he got his price. And so that's that's a big takeaway. So for those of you out there that are taking notes, you might want to jot that down. Well, as we get to the end here of our podcast and sharing these stories, why don't we talk a little bit about a transaction that we can wrap up and learn a great takeaway before we end up today. All right, great. I think the the last one I'll talk about is a shower glass door and mirror company. And, you know, for those of you who aren't familiar with Florida, in Florida, we actually co-broke. Uh, it's one of the few states where you know a significant amount of uh, co-brokering goes on in the business brokerage industry. Why don't you just expand on that a little bit of what co-brokering is all about for those that may not be familiar with that term? Sure, co-brokering is uh, you know basically representing uh, the buy side and sell side by two different brokers. So another broker would bring a uh, buyer to maybe one of my businesses I have for sale, and I would cooperate with them and you know share a commission. And vice versa. So I can bring a buyer, you know, to another broker who has a business for sale and they would share a commission with me. So that's co-brokering. And in this, in this instance, uh, the sell side was actually one of the guys who works for me, uh, an in-house guy named Steve Niehaus. Steve's, uh, you know, excellent broker that I've worked with uh, now for two years. He's worked with me for two years. And he had the sell side and I had the buy side. And his seller, to give you a little bit of uh, background on, on, on him, was a young seller uh, who had some medical issues and wanted to return to his home state uh, to be closer to family. And, you know, he was honestly struggling a little bit, uh, you know, to maintain and grow the business, uh, you know, and keep up with the work because of these health issues. The buy side, who the person I brought to the table, very competent buyer, former COO of Thermatru. Uh, Thermatru is a Toledo, Ohio uh, door manufacturer. So it was a little bit different interest, uh, industry. He wasn't making you know, exterior doors. Uh, he was making shower glass doors. And that was a fairly large company, was it? Uh, yeah, very large. Yep. So you know, he, he, uh, he was looking for a deal. Uh, where, you know, he could talk to a seller about staying on a little bit to, in order to, you know, assist with a transition into kind of an industry that he wasn't completely unfamiliar with, but he wasn't, you know, certainly not uh, any level of expertise in it. So in this case, uh, you know, we were able to work with uh, the seller and uh, include in the deal you know, a one-year contract, employment contract to assist in the transition of the business, specifically in a sales capacity to help grow the business. Now, the new buyer wanted to grow, whether it was organic or or inorganic. So he was looking, you know, for someone to go out and do sales. And he was also looking, you know, to acquire additional uh, shower glass door and mirror companies. So uh, that was his vision. And 
you know, we were fortunate to find a seller that aligned with that vision and was willing to at least, uh, you know, spend a year uh, in the business, you know, executing sales to, to stimulate growth uh, while, you know, the buyer, uh, you know, focused in on learning the operations. So, you know, it was a pretty good fit for buyer and seller. So did this buyer coming from a large COO of a large nationally based company, did he have a grand vision of what he was going to do with this company he was acquiring? Well, his, his vision was, you know, to eventually uh, expand, you know, a little bit horizontally, horizontally uh, into, you know, kitchen and bath remodeling and uh, eventually, uh, you know, expand geographically up the Gulf Coast of Florida. So he's got a pretty grand vision. Um, and uh, we actually executed a second acquisition of a shower glass door and mirror company, you know, shortly after, you know, this one was completed back. You know, the first one was in February. The second one was actually in March. So as this buyer and seller got together, what would you say the big takeaway here is? Well, I think the, the big takeaway is if, uh, you know, from a buyer perspective and a seller perspective, everybody's got their own visions. And if there's a, if there's a fit, you know, between those or synergy between those visions and, you know, you can get a buyer and a seller, a seller excited about working together, even post trans, you know, post transaction. I mean, it makes a sale very, very, you know, quick and easy. If there's any, you know, differences in those visions, you know, it can, you know, disrupt the, transaction. So I guess alignment, what you're really talking about here is as a seller is looking uh, at a buyer, if he can align what his vision for the business that he spent years building and align it with what the vision of the buyer is, then you have a good fit there. And in this particular case, I guess he was willing to stay on for a year. He was willing to stay on in a sales capacity and to grow the business. And so that's a great alignment. And what would you say the percentage when you have that type of alignment? What do you, would you say the percentage of deals like that actually getting done and done close to what the seller envisions that he needs out of the business? Pretty close to a hundred percent. You know, when when you you know the only times I I would say that they don't get done is if it's over nickels and dimes. And you know, we talked about a seller needing a number, and if a buyer can't come up with that number. Uh, you know, that's when you see the deal, you know, not happening. Um, you know, it's just buy side shortfall and, you know, funds required to do the deal. But other than that, you know, taking that out of the picture, I mean, those deals get done 100% of the time. Well, that's a great takeaway for those that are thinking about the day they're going to position their business for sale. If you want to increase the probability of getting the deal done, figure out how you can align your needs with the buyer's needs. And if you can do that, you have a high degree, a high probability anyway, of being able to get what you need out of the business and to close that transaction. Well, this has been great. Appreciate your time here today. It's been enjoyable. Uh, You had some great transactional stories with us here today. For those in our audience that would like to perhaps reach out to you and get a hold of you, what would be the best way for them to reach out to you? Well, you can uh, email me at Eric with a C at Edison B as in business, A as in advisors.com. Uh, or you can call or text me uh, at 239-738-6227. 
Well, great. Eric, thank you for taking the time. Appreciate your willingness to share those stories. Until next time, where we'll share some more stories on business exits, is Marvin Storm for Business Exit Stories. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.